possible that we might see record viewing the figures. I've introduced their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has sector. increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. everyone and welcome to this month's episode of the AMP podcast. I'm Manal Mota and today I'll be joined by Ting Ting Lee, Piers Harding-Rolls and Ben McMurray who will be drawing on some insight and latest analysis from this month's research output and discuss some of the developments and changes we've been seeing in the industry. First up, I'm going to talk to Ting Ting about Netflix and HBO Max. Thank you for joining us Ting Ting. We'll get into HBO Max in a bit but let's start with Netflix. What are the latest trends you've been seeing from Netflix around what's being viewed the most? So uh, there we see some of the popular shows being the new released uh, original movies uh, that uh, Netflix has been producing. So, for example, we see Extraction being a hit in March. Uh, and recently, we also have a big title like um, Project Power. And apart from that, also the the new release of new seasons of existing shows are also proving to be popular. So, for example, uh, the season three of 13 Reasons Why, which was released uh, around May and June, was like a big hit at, at that moment. Uh, and uh, currently, we have some uh, new season release of uh, popular shows like uh, Lucifer and the Umbrella Academy, which are kind of the top one or two title globally uh, uh, on Netflix. Perfect. So have you seen, um, you mentioned that obviously 13 Reasons Why was top in at the beginning of lockdown. Um, and then we've seen Umbrella Academy and shows like that do well. Um, is there any trend in how the top shows have changed over the lockdown period? Um, I would say like the key genres stays kind of the same. So it's kind of stable being uh, like crime, uh, crime and thriller titles or sci-fi and fantasy titles. But we do see a slight decline of documentary titles in the overall top 10 title list. Uh, so that is a, a kind of obvious trend. But I would say uh, during the lockdown and after lockdown, the, the key routes are uh, stays relatively stable. Amazing. So if we move on to um, HBO Max, now this launched all the way back in May this year, and I understand that you've been looking at its launch catalogue. Now, firstly, with other HBO products in the market, such as HBO Now and HBO Go, how much, if at all, crossover is there between the different products? Uh, so currently on HBO Go and HBO, HBO Now, there are about less than 2,000 titles. While uh, on HBO Max, there are over 2,600 titles. So I would say basically most of the titles on HBO Now are, are now on HBO Max. And over 80% of the, the TV shows are on HBO Max as well. So for HBO Max, the, the additional um, content they added are like Warner and Turner Productions. Uh, this includes like DC Comics, like the Batman series, uh, CNN titles, 
uh, and cattle network titles like Tony Tunes. Uh, so uh, definitely, this there is like a big expansion on the catalog size on at HBO Max. As well as that big expansion, do you think the high quality of the HBO Max catalog as a whole, with the new um, titles that they've added in and the originals that they have, will make it easier for them to attract new customers? I think uh, right now for HBO Max, they are trying to just target a wider range of audience. So as we know, HBO shows are mostly uh, targeting like adults group. So uh, for HBO's strategy, uh, HBO Max is to just uh, get a wider demographic group of people on board. So they'll be added some uh, children and family shows. Uh, to attract the the household with uh, children and also some like classic and older movies uh, like Lord of the Rings to attract an older age group. So I would say they would try to use the high quality of HBO shows as well as a wider variety of the content to get uh, a wider uh, range of audience on board. That's really interesting, the use of both their own um, programming, but also the wider, I suppose, Warner catalogs as well. Um, I suppose currently HBO Max is only available in the US. Um, and I read somewhere that they have a target of 30 million international subscribers by 2025. In your opinion, how do you think they all plan to achieve this? And do you think it's realistic? Uh, I would say like currently... Like in the US, most of the subscribers are still kind of the existing HBO Now subscribers. So I think as I mentioned earlier, they're trying to get more content and doing a lot of uh, future commissioning to uh, expand the, the catalog. So uh, for international expansion, I think they are trying to target first the, the existing HBO Go markets where they already have a subscriber base. These countries will include Nordic countries and uh, South America. The strategy to attract the audience there is to have a more localized version of HBO Go. So they are like, for example, in South America, they're producing more localized uh, titles. So like Spanish, uh, Spanish language titles to attract local uh, local audience as well. Brilliant. Thank you for your time, Tinkerting. I'm a huge fan of HBO content, so it's always interesting to hear what they're up to. Um, moving on to some gaming news now. Piers, thank you for joining me. You've recently published a report on the ongoing battle between Epic Games and Apple. Now, for those who haven't been following the story, can you give me a brief overview of why Epic have collided with Apple's App Store policy? So this has been a long-running saga. Um, Tim Sweeney, who is the CEO of Epic Games, um, Epic Games is the publisher of Fortnite, if, if you don't know that. And so obviously they're very well-respected within the game sector. They've got increased financial power because of Fortnite and how strongly it's been performing in the games market. But Tim Sweeney has had this bee in his bonnet for a long time about how uh, different platforms um, control what can be distributed on different platforms and also the transaction revenue share, which is given to other platforms. And so when it's thinking about its kind of strategy to grow, 
um, it believes that it needs to have better access to some of the world's biggest platforms, which include iOS in, in the context of Apple, and obviously uh, Android devices in the context of Google. And it would like better conditions for its um, you know, commercial operations on those platforms. So that's really what's driving this kind of uh, competition and this antitrust lawsuit that it's pursuing with Apple in the US. Has the fact that Epic has a long history of operating in the PC market contributed to its position against Apple? Um, to an extent, I think that's uh, true, yes. Um, so Epic has a very long history, um, and it originally operated within the PC space. And I think it it sort of positions its view on the competitive nature of platforms on the PC space. Um, Fortnite is available across different platforms now, and it's obviously been operating in the console space for some time. But I think um, its history in the PC space obviously gives it um, this view that it should be operating uh, those platforms which it's now extended in onto, so including um, iOS. That those platforms should be more open, a bit more like the PC space, which does not control the types of software that users can download and use, obviously. And, you know, it's open to other payment processing and third-party payment processing, um, which those software vendors want to use. So that's the, the type of environment it's trying to uh, leverage Apple into uh, in terms of uh, the iOS platform. Just taking like one step back, what is Epic hoping to achieve with its Epic Games Store and Fortnite strategies? So... Over about the last two years, Epic Games has kind of transformed from what was a uh, company that made tools for games developers and also operated um, some um, relatively successful games franchises. But then it launched Fortnite and that propelled it into the kind of tier one league in terms of revenue it was generating, but also the profitability of that uh, content. It started to release content across all platforms in that in that context, and it has given it the uh, engine to uh, expand its uh, its growth strategy. So its overall strategy for growth, which is now focused on launching its own storefront. So it's done that in the in the PC space, digital storefront. It wants to bring that to the the mobile platforms as well but it doesn't have the kind of, sort of commercial environment to allow that to happen. And also Fortnite in itself is becoming much more of a sort of platform player as opposed to just a, a games experience. It's now a social platform in effect for many users. And uh, Fortnite is used for promoting music, uh, premium music, but and also premium video. Um, so increasingly it wants to use that as a as a platform play and expand those strategies onto other platforms. And I think it's thinking about how it wants to monetize those other entertainment uh, propositions on within Fortnite. And to do that, it needs to have the right environment in on, on the platforms that it's operating in. And that's why it's, it's trying to push out, um, Apple to reduce its fees in that context. Given that um, Fortnite is such a huge phenomenon at the moment, um, do you think Epic are trying to leverage 
consumers in their argument with Apple. Yeah, absolutely. So they've done this kind of unique strategy. They've gone really full out in terms of um, promoting this kind of anti-Apple agenda and free Fortnite uh, agenda uh, within the game. So they've actually introduced uh, in-game items, which are kind of anti-Apple in the context of the game. They've also um, they uh, show this kind of promotional message after you finish the match within Fortnite, which is kind of promoting the free Fortnite campaign, in inverted commas. Um, so they're really trying to leverage their audience to sort of push back at Apple um, and get them to, um, you know, use that sort of consumer sentiment to try to get them to change their their policies. The other, the other aspect of this is in their antitrust case, they are trying to prove consumer harm as well. So by putting this into the kind of consumer space, they're trying to uh, add weight to their arguments around consumer harm. Personally, I don't think that this is a consumer harm issue. Uh, if you're thinking about the areas of consumer harm, so for example, reducing fees uh, for um, in in app purchases, for example, you know the share that's given to Apple, thirty percent currently, that was reduced. I don't think that would result in cheaper IAP for consumers. I think that would um, give potentially uh, more, you know, savings to the developer who would then spend is likely to spend more on user acquisition and other aspects rather than passing those savings on to the consumer. So I don't think. It could be argued it's a consumer issue in that context. And the other, the other um, aspect of this is the availability of other app stores. And I think they're trying to position on that and to say, if you're controlling all distribution, you're not giving everyone the choice that they should have. Um, Apple is not giving people choice, the choice that they should have. And in that context, um, Epic is saying, you know, that the consumer choice is limited. But if you think about the number of uh, games apps that are available on the App Store. I think it's approaching a million. Um, you know, no one could argue that there is a, a lack of choice for the consumer. So I think it's very difficult for them to actually prove consumer harm. But obviously, that's up to the the, um, the kind of judge judges to to make that decision. So what what's Apple's position on all of this? Do you think that they're going to be willing to compromise with Epic? Um, so there's obviously a lot of pressure going on around um, big technology companies and the companies that control these platforms. So there's a um, there's an EU um, antitrust investigation going on uh, based on Spotify's complaints about the 30% share that Apple takes. Um, so obviously there's pressure being exerted in that context. There's other companies which have sort of joined the bandwagon. So Microsoft and Facebook have made public statements about um, how Apple is not allowing them to have the apps the way they would like them in the context of um, um, so their specific complaints really around um, gaming apps as well. So they have Facebook gaming. They want to have um, uh, instant games that are available on that, but they because that in effect acts as a sort of separate app store. Um, Apple doesn't allow it. Um, and other entities, so news publishers, for example, have, who've complained about um, the sort of business model that's uh, around the news app that uh, Apple, premium news app that Apple operates, um, is 
sort of complaining about the the share of revenue that's get, that gets given to Apple in that context. Um, so there's a lot of pressure sort of building. Um, I think it's more likely that there will be a compromise in the context of um, the amount that is taken by the processing fee. I don't think Apple will want to open up platform to other app stores and um, you know um, create a different environment for the for the end user. Um, I think they'll fight that vigorously. And I don't, you know, if you think about Apple and the product that it offers in, in iOS and iPhone and iPad, it is that kind of curated and um, safe environment of everything going through the, the Apple App Store and the payment processing being a single payment processor, you know, processing experience, not a sort of choice of variable uh, different payment methods. Um, in that context, um, changing that uh, by introducing new app stores and other payment processing would completely alter the feel, look and feel, I think, of the iOS platform. So I think that's much less likely to happen. Thank you for that, Piers. I'm sure there's a lot more to come from that news story in the coming weeks. Um, and finally, the Premier League season is back this Saturday after a very short hiatus. Um, and there have been a lot of news stories around it. So I'm joined by my colleague, Ben McMurray, to discuss some of these. Uh, thanks for joining me, Ben. Let's start off with the recent story that the Premier League will be dropping the 3pm blackout window for the first time ever. Um, is this a direct result of the success of all the matches being televised in the last few months during lockdown? Hi, Minel. Thank you for having me. Uh, allowing the broadcast of every Premier League game, of course, that's an appeal to the broadcasters who can now show hundreds of hours worth of additional games for one of their most prized sports competitions. It's also important in the context of fans who want to see their team, but currently are unable to go to the matches where no crowds are being allowed into stadiums and otherwise would have to either miss the game or turn to illegal streams. Encouraging fans to go to the games was the main purpose of the 3pm blackout when it was introduced. Uh, and currently fans going to those games isn't an option at the minute. So it's allowing the fans to see those games that they would have seen live in some format, at least. I've read some reports which suggest that this will definitely continue while there are no crowds in the stadiums. But do you think it will also continue once crowds are allowed back in? I think it's very possible. Commercially, it makes sense. The broadcasting rights are the Premier League's biggest source of revenue, and they've got all of these games that effectively haven't been monetized in that way. Uh, yeah, there's highlights, but the live broadcasts are the real heart of where that revenue lies. Um, on the flip side, it does pose a threat to stadium attendances, which for many of the lower division clubs is a very important source of income. Uh, our consumer research shows 93% of championship fans are also Premier League fans. So when you think about fans of clubs that aren't in those top divisions in that 3pm time slot, where they might have chosen to go and see their local team. If there's a Premier League broadcast available, they might opt to watch that instead, taken away from money earned from attendances for those clubs that really rely on it. The FA will have to look at how well it has worked at achieving this goal and if the money from additional TV rights could be distributed down as an alternative way to support those smaller clubs. As well as the impact it may have on the lower league attendances, do you also think it will have a knock-on effect on the Premier League's broadcast deals with Sky and BT? 
So as it stands, the deals have remained in place with the additional games being given to the broadcasters on top of their original contracts at no extra charge. Uh, This means that the current deals up to 2022 likely won't see too drastic a change. But if there are these extra games available for the next cycle of rights, we could see them distributed between a greater number of teams or even a direct-to-consumer service from the Premier League, each of which could impact the value of rights. With the increased number of matches on TV then, what does that do to the value of the games themselves? So usually all of the most important games will be shown anyway, with broadcasters able to select which games are shown within certain limitations. So what's left is a large number of the slightly less valuable games. However, any Premier League game will have an audience, particularly when you think about fans of those clubs that are playing in a particular game. Uh, Now, as a result of that, if we think about the negotiation of a new contract, which involves those extra games, the increase in value won't be proportional to the number of games, but anything that draws a significant audience will also add significant value. Speaking of the broadcast deals, one of the biggest stories in the last week was the cancellation of the rights deal between PPTV in China and the Premier League. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, clearly this is a blow for both the league and the clubs. Uh, The termination of a deal worth over £500 million in total is going to have an impact. In general, renegotiations as a result of the effects of COVID-19 have been pretty successful. But in this case, especially with political tension between the countries, uh, it's been quite difficult and just seems as though a compromise couldn't be found. And now, so close to the start of a new season, we'll have to see if a new deal can be formed with broadcasters in China. And if so, how much will be offered in comparison to the substantial amount that PPTV would have been paying. Perfect. Thank you very much, Ben, and to all of this week's panellists. That concludes the end of this episode, which was episode three, season two of the AMP podcast. Thank you all for listening. We will be bringing you another episode next month, looking at some of the latest trends and changes we've seen in the media market. So be sure to tune in then. (music) 